Okay, let me get to the right one. Reading oh, live stream. You started, oh, wait a second, I haven't even introduced you. you oh. so, yeah, just give me one second. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, it is the fourth Wednesday of the month, which means it's time for Prescription for Wellness with the Lifestyle Docs, Drs. Bandana and Munish Chala. And today they're going to be talking about yet another pillar of lifestyle medicine community. Please welcome them both to the show. Thanks so much. Good morning. Nice to be here early in the morning this time. Yes, bright and early with our community. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I see I see your slides, but there I'm seeing the slides on the left as well. Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and hit slideshow. And both of us, we're gonna tag team this one. I'm gonna start and then Dr. B's gonna finish. Great. And as uh, Chef AJ mentioned, today we're gonna talk about community and healthy relationships. And you know, as before, we don't have any disclosures. Uh, I just want to remind everyone about lifestyle medicine that, you know, it's composed of these six pillars, healthful eating, eating a predominantly and, you know, we say exclusively whole food plant-based diet, uh, regular physical activity, healthy uh, ways or strategies to manage stress, uh, getting a good night's sleep, uh, forming and maintaining relationships or community, which is what we're going to cover today. And actually, the only one we haven't covered is cessation of tobacco and other uh, risky substances and addictions in general. So that's going to be our next one. But today, we're going to focus on community forming and maintaining healthy relationships. So our objectives for today are, you know, what role does community play in holistic health? And what, do, what does it mean when we talk about authentic connection? What are the downsides of social isolation? And uh, we're gonna talk about the blue zones, arguably the healthiest community in all, you know, on the planet, really, there's five of them. And what role do physicians play in fostering healthy, healthy community? Okay, so let's dive right in. So, I think ultimately what we're all trying to do is to be healthy physically, mentally, and spiritually. And you know, another way to say it is to experience holistic health. And really we're gonna focus on community because it's at the center of all of this. And let's just kind of unpack that a little bit. That, you know, just in terms of physical health and emotional well-being, you know, some people are just naturally motivated. They'll, you know, get up at five in the morning, go jogging or go to the gym or swimming, whatever their usual way of working out is. But I think for a lot of us that if we have somebody that we can walk with or swim with or even meet at the gym, it makes us much more likely to work out. You know, we get lazy and we feel a little bit tired, but if we've made a commitment that we're going to be at a certain place and join them for a walk, we're much more likely to show up. And exercise in general is going to, you know, reduce our cortisol, reduce our other stress hormones, reduce inflammation. But there is uh, considerable research showing that maybe this goes down even a little bit more if we have a workout buddy. And certainly there's considerable research in increase in oxytocin when we do any activity together. So oxytocin, uh, just reminding folks, this is the cuddle hormone. This is you know, what allows us to bond, connect, and just kind of makes us feel good to be, feel, feel part of a healthy community. So when we're working out together, there's decrease in cortisol, increase in oxytocin, and you can see, you know, both of these are going to promote a feeling of well-being, feeling of connection. And so then, you know, sometimes the question arises, you know, does it have to be close friends or families that when we have that connection that we experience these positive emotions? And there's actually a lot of research on connection, on positive emotions. In fact, one of the uh, really highly regarded researchers, uh, Dr. Barbara Friedrichsen, her field is positive psychology. And she actually looks at, 
you know, what happens to us when we're experiencing positive emotions? This is, you know, joy, feeling of connection, feeling of well-being, awe, wonder, all of these positive emotions, you know, what do they have in common? What do they do for us? One of the things that happens is when you experience positive emotions in a group, or as I'm showing, this is, you know, mother and daughter here, and this is a group at, you know, at a work setting, that the first point I want to make is it's not just that you have to be with a close family member, that you can experience these micro movements, just short instances throughout the day that really can invoke positive emotions. And the term micro is deliberate because they don't have to be for very long. They can be just for 30 seconds, even a few minutes. As long as they're authentic, they're going to invoke these positive emotions. And you know, at a biochemical level, what happens is we, both the partners, let's kind of stick with the mother and daughter for a second, both of them are going to have a decrease in cortisol, increase in oxytocin. They're going to have changes in their epigenetics. So more of the uh, healthier hormones, happier hormones are created and inflammation is decreased. So all these chemicals, they are being produced, being modulated minute to minute in our body. And this is how epigenetics, this is how we decide which genes are turned on. So the genes that turn on happiness, you know, are going to be emphasized and the genes that promote, let's say, inflammation, they're going to be de-emphasized. And this happens in both individuals. And when there is biochemical synchrony, there's oftentimes behavioral synchrony will mirror each other's uh, actions. You can see in this photo, both the women are kind of leaning into each other. Looking at the photograph in the work setting, everybody's sort of leaning in together. So when this happens, we are more likely to invest in each other's mutual well-being. So it can be in an office setting or it can be a close family member. And the term that Barbara Friedrichson uses is called positivity resonance. When we experience positive emotions together, when our biochemical and behavior is sort of synchronized, we experience positivity resonance and basically we just feel good. And so... I want to kind of cover some of the other physiological changes that can happen when we achieve positive connection or authentic connection. Our vagal tone is increased, which is, you know, going to emphasize our parasympathetic nervous system and again, going to reduce our stress. And I mentioned previously, increases oxytocin, again, emphasizing positive emotions. And there are other physiological changes like reduction in blood pressure, reduction in inflammatory molecules. And as I was mentioning, this you know all takes place because our genes, their expression through the field of epigenetics, they are changing, being modulated by authentic connection. So if any of that's you know not 100% clear, we'll be happy to kind of take questions at the end and kind of open that up a little bit more also. One of the studies that comes up fairly frequently when you look at positive relationships, when you look at community, is this the study called Grant and Gluick study. And this study has been going on for 80 years and it's still ongoing. And this is like one of the longest studies in record, not just in US, in the entire world. And what they did was they followed folks and then in the 1930s and early 1940s, they followed folks from who had graduated from Harvard uh, Business School. And in the 1970s, they added folks that were in inner city uh, Boston. The folks from Harvard were basically uh, white males. And in the 70s, they added predominantly African-American males. And they kind of followed them. They looked at, you know, how much money they ended up having over the course of their time. What was their social status? Uh, what sort of jobs they have? What sort of genetics did they have? What was their family history? And they were just kind of seeing, do any of these things have anything to do with health and longevity? And they also, of course, looked at spouses and close personal friends. You know what we're talking about, positive relationships and healthy community. And this is one of the lead investigators. He was the lead investigator for 35 years, Dr. George Valent. 
And this is a quote from him. When the study began, no one cared about empathy or attachment, but the key to healthy aging is relationships, relationships, relationships. And what they found, yes, money was important, you know, intelligence, career, uh, good genes, healthy family history, but seemed to be even more important was having close interpersonal relationships, especially spouse or a best friend. So there is a lot of research showing that, you know, if you're married, you're going to end up living longer. And a lot of my couples, you know, they do the programs together and they kind of sometimes stop me and they say, you know, we're bickering all the time. Is it going to work for us also? And I said, you know, this is what the research shows that even if you're not getting along with your spouse all the time, as long as I'm going to use the words of Dr. Ron Siegel, he says, when push comes to shove, if both of you feel like that the other person has your back, then you're going to have that security. You're going to have a healthier, longer health span and lifespan. So I'm going to kind of transition that, you know, what are the consequences of being sort of isolated? Are there any health consequences that result from that? And actually, these have been very clearly researched and documented that people who feel isolated or are alone, they utilize the healthcare system much more. They're much more likely to come in for a you know, sore throat or chest pain where the people who are married or maybe are not so isolated, they'll kind of wait it out and see if the symptoms get better. There is higher uh, mental health issues with folks that are isolated. And really from a physiological or medical standpoint, there is increased risk for heart attacks and strokes with people that feel isolated. Even they have higher risk of mortality. As I mentioned previously, they die prematurely than folks who are married. And there's one really elegant study that was uh, published in the British Medical Journal, and they evaluated you know, what role did social isolation play in the risk of MI and stroke? So basically these individuals were hospitalized because they had a heart attack or a stroke. And they had them fill out a questionnaire. You know, did they feel lonely, isolated? And the, uh, the questionnaire was filled out by the patient at some point in their hospitalization. And one, they had a higher incidence of MI and stroke and the symptom, not just higher incidence, but it was more severe. And even when they were stabilized and they were looking at other risk factors, they were looking at, you know, what age, what uh, sort of family history, what was their cholesterol, what was their diet and lifestyle. So the questionnaire was pretty complete. And then they followed these folks for a year afterwards and kind of mitigating for all those other factors, you know, how severe the heart attack was, what was their cholesterol, what was their blood pressure. And then they sort of, you know, isolated this particular factor that they feel alone or loneliness or isolation. And they found that in one year's time, people who were lonely and felt isolated had a much higher risk of dying from the heart attack, dying from the stroke than people who had good family support. So, you know, we've all just kind of, you know, maybe we're getting out of this epidemic. You know, the World Health Organization is actually no longer calling it a pandemic. But over the last three years, this has had profound impact on social isolation. And this is something I think the medical community could have done better, that you would definitely wanted to do social distancing, but we didn't want to promote social isolation. But, you know, I think that was some of the things that did happen. I think, you know, even connecting on Zoom can be helpful, but this really reached epidemic promotion uh, proportions amongst the elderly. And here are the, you know, sort of the fatality rates for people at different ages. And certainly some of the age, you know, as we get older, we're more frail, we have more medical diseases. So our chance, our immune system doesn't work as well. So our chance of, uh, uh, dying from any infection, including COVID, is going to be higher. But they really think that some of the reason that the older folks had a higher rate of dying was because of social isolation. And there are, you know, abnormal physiological 
Oops, sorry about that. Let me go back. Changes that occur in isolation, as I mentioned, leads to adverse uh, physical and mental health. And one of the ways it leads to adverse physical health is, you know, when we're not feeling our best, when we are feeling, you know, down or anxious or depressed, we're going to make poorer diet and lifestyle choices. So that's another way social isolation can affect it. So it directly affects our longevity and indirectly through poorer diet and lifestyle choices can also lead to you know, reduced health span and lifespan. So you know, one of the questions that comes up frequently that can you have authentic connection on social media? So this is, you know, there's some debate about this, but the research is you know, becoming more clear that technology in some ways can really help us. So, you know, like joining a Zoom meeting, let's say, you know, you're not uh, able to see your parents, you live in a different city, and especially, you know, the grandparents are more interested in the grandkids than the actual kids. But if they can see them on Zoom, that can be a really good way to maintain that authentic connection. So something like, you know, that can, you know, uh, that can really work well. And you can just see that, you know, this is a special day where mom and daughter got together at the beach. And if they are on the same sort of Facebook account, they're on the phone, they're kind of sharing pictures, you know, throughout that day, they can really kind of maintain the authentic connection. They're not physically the same space, but they can use technology to really, you know, maintain that connection. However, what we see is whether it's Instagram or Facebook, the more the social media usage is, the higher the rates of depression. And this, I think, sort of makes clear that if you can have authentic connection using social media or technology, that that's very helpful. But when that connection is not authentic, it's actually harmful. And this data of social media usage and depression comes from a study with college-age students. And they notice that the more that the college-age students use social media, the higher the rates of depression. And this you know, kind of makes sense because on Facebook or Instagram, you're gonna post your best pictures. And it seems like everybody's on vacation, everybody's doing well, everybody's, you know, gotten a promotion, everybody's, you know, looking lean and wonderful. Whereas we represent ourselves in a not so authentic way on social media. So the more you kind of give that information to you and you feel like, okay, I'm the only one who's not doing well, you can see that how can this be clearly be related to depression. So I don't want to give the idea that technology is all bad. It can be used to maintain connection, but it has to be an authentic connection. And we, you know, we have to talk about can uh, communities or close friends, can they result in negative health behaviors? And actually, this can definitely happen. This is another long study that was, they followed individuals for about 35 or 36 years. And this was published in New England Journal of Medicine. And they tracked the spread of ob obesity in a large social network. So if the friends that you have are, you know, drinking soda, eating pizza, even though they may be outdoors, you know, if they're eating junk food and doing this, it's going to lead to negative health outcomes. And if we do this together as a community, it's going to lead to negative health, health outcomes for everyone in that you know, uh, friendship circle. So what they noticed that over time, if a close friend, a uh, uh, best friend really, became obese, then the person's chance of becoming obese increased by 57%. And then increased by 37%. If the, per, uh, if the spouse became obese, which I find really interesting that our diet and health behaviors were even more closely related to our best friend than our spouse. And the study found that if our neighbor got obese, there was like no correlation. So which lets us know two things. One, that, that there is real power, that whoever we spend time with, their health behaviors, their diet rubs off on us. And as, as we know, in general, Americans don't really spend any time with their neighbors. And 
since that's the case, there's no correlation. If our neighbor gets a visa, it has no impact on us because we're not really uh, socializing with them very much. That you know, most of the benefits from having a community, especially a healthy community, are positive ones. And as I mentioned previously, there's no better community that you know that has been so extensively studied for positive health behaviors than the folks in the blue zones. And Dr. B is sort of our local expert on the blue zones. So I'm going to turn it over to her. Uh, if she wants me to continue forwarding the slides, I can do that. But if you want to bring up the slides, I can do that. No, let's, uh, let's not waste time me bringing it up on my laptop. If you can forward it, that would be great. Okay. Um, so that was great. I really enjoyed learning a lot of what you talked about. I wanted to clarify one thing though. Um, there was part of the presentation where it really kind of focused on um, like being married to be healthy. And I wanted to clarify that's not the case. Um, it's all about healthy relationships that make you healthy, um, both physically, mentally, spiritually. And those healthy relationships can be with spouse, but they can also of course be and should be with family, friends, colleagues, pets, nature, and our own selves. Um, so some of my micro moments of authentic connection, um, as they're called, have been when I've been with myself, journaling or meditating or being out in nature and spending time with nature. So just wanted to clarify. Um, so we'll move on to the blue zones. Blue zones are basically these areas of the world where people have really long and healthy lives. So these are the longevity hotspots of the world. Um, people reach the age of 100, a centenarian, 10 times more than in other parts of the world like the US. Um, not only are they living a really long life, but they're also um, living a much healthier life. So it's also a long health span, which is what really impresses me in terms of they have a much lower incidence of dementia and heart disease and cancer and things like depression. And so Dan Buettner, uh, in 2004, he teamed up with National Geographic and went to these longevity hotspots of the world. He took a team of anthropologists and historians and geneticists and scientists um, to really kind of from various um, aspects study the science of living longer, basically reverse engineering longevity to see what they're doing that we can learn from. And actually, if you could go back to the previous slide for a second. Um, so there are basically nine healthy habits that he talks about, but these four are the most important that are written on this slide. So they move naturally. They don't have gym memberships, but movement is a big part of their life. Many of them, even in their 90s, are biking to their local grocery store to get what they need for the day. They have a right outlook. They feel like they have a purpose. They downshift. They eat wisely, a predominantly plant-based diet, um, even though they don't know the terms vegans or vegetarians. Large number of their meals, about 17, 18 meals a week, will happen to be plant-based. And then what we're talking about today, which is the right tribe. Um, it turns out people around them are all practicing healthy lifestyle. Um, so healthy choice is the easy choice because everybody around you is also trying to be healthy. Um, so now let's go on. And I talked about in 2004, how it was um, uh, on the cover of National Geographic. Um, and here's Dan Buettner, um, with a lady from Costa Rica who is a centenarian. Um, and as you can see, she's very engaged in life and she still has some muscle mass there. Um, and this is a quote by Dan Buettner saying, a long healthy life is no accident. It begins with good genes, but it also depends on good habits. And what we've found out since then is that good habits are actually carry more weight than good genes often in terms of our health and longevity. Um, 
to where we have studies with twins, which have the same genes, but different health habits and how that affects their health. And also we have a lot of epidemiologic data of people who move from healthy places like the blue zone to places like the US and how they now start getting diseases of the place that they've moved to because not because their genes have changed so quickly, but because their diet and lifestyle has changed quickly. Oh, and then for um, those of you who are interested, he actually did write a book about uh, blue zones as well. And this does go into the nine healthy habits in more details. Um, we can move on. And then, you know, one of those healthy habits that he talks about is the healthy community, which is our topic for today. Um, so in all of these blue zones, there is a big emphasis on community. Um, for instance, Okinawa, Japan, which is one of the blue zone, it's called Moai, um, which is basically a group of lifelong friends. So many of these people are friends from age five to 95. Um, and it's basically a social support group that forms in order to provide varying support from social, financial, health, and spiritual interests. So basically, a lot of times, just like family, these friends are so close that you know they have your back, that if you need help in any aspect of your life, that you can turn to them. And that does wonders for our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. So here they are again, Okinawa, Japan, Ikaria, Greece, Sardinia, Italy, Nicoya, Costa Rica, and one right here in the US, uh, Loma Linda, California, which is only like an hour away from LA. But people there tend to live about 11 years longer um, than the rest of the US. And the reason being is that Loma Linda, California has a large um, percentage of people who are Seventh-day Adventists. And Seventh-day Adventists are basically a sect of Christianity where they are taught to really um, treat their body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, to where as a whole, they don't, they don't smoke, they don't drink, um, they eat little or any meat, um, they exercise regularly, they take a day of Sabbath, and they focus on healthy community. And the next slide shows how um, often, you know, after um, church, they'll tend to get together for healthy potlucks, or they'll tend to get together for things like hiking. Um, and here's a family hiking in Loma Linda, California. So, one of the things that we want to do as lifestyle medicine physicians is try to provide that healthy community for our patients, because many of them are not getting it out in their workplaces and out um, with their social circles because other people out there that they're hanging out with are not, um, not focusing on health. So one of the things that we did quite a bit before the pandemic, but then it slowed down, was something called group visits or shared medical appointments. And when we go talk to medical students, we let them know that this is a way that they can actually see a bunch of patients together and give them community and also bill for it as a regular office visit. So I could have um, four to six patients, let's say with similar diagnosis like diabetes, where we in the clinic would do like a little cooking demo and talk about, you know, um, healthy diet for diabetes all together. And that way with these four to six patients, I can spend an hour, hour and a half. So all of them get longer time with us and also with each other, and they can ask more questions, but still just bill for a 15 minute office visit for all of them. So I still haven't spent, you know, any more time than I would have if I did separate 15 minute visits with them. But this way we all get more time and they have more of that uh, group support. We also still do group support sessions, but those are more um, Dr. M does them for the people doing the lifestyle medicine programs. And those are on Zoom. So in a way Zoom has made it easier to have some of these um, 
group support sessions and group visits. The other thing we try to do is um, provide our patients with communal resources about nonprofits and churches, yoga studios, YMCA, running club, book club, meetups and virtual groups where they can continue their health journey in terms of finding other people who are also interested in running or interested in plant-based eating or other things um, that they may have harder time finding in just their routine um, places that they go to. Um, I know that uh, Chef AJ has started a meetup with plant-based SOS-free potlucks in her area. So it's really a great idea to find what's going on near you and join a community of healthy people. Because like Dr. M said, when we hang around with healthy people, <clears throat> that on us. And the other things that we do at our clinic to help provide that healthy community to our patients is we do things like plant-based cooking classes. We'll do yoga, meditation, Pilates, and other things at the clinic on weekends. And then um, plant-based potlucks, which are very popular, walk with a dog, and then group support sessions that I mentioned before. Oh, here's some pictures of um, Dr. M leading one of the meditations um, and then a yoga class going on. Um, and then I think on the next slide, we have the big walk with a doc uh, crowd that we had. This was before the pandemic. Um, that's why we're all so close together and, um, and a big crowd. Um, so yeah, so really there walk with a doc chapters all around. It was started by a cardiologist in New Jersey but it's now spread throughout the country and even throughout the world. Um, so you can look up, walk with a doc chapter near me, and you don't even have to be that doctor's patient to go to their walking groups and walking um, uh, times. You can look up their days and times that they walk with the community. So I encourage you guys to do more of these activities and hang out with other people who are also trying to be on the same journey and the same path. And I think that's it. We can take some questions if you guys have any. Yeah, this worked out perfectly because this is actually one of our shorter presentations. So <laughs> that is great. Well, you know, it's really interesting because um, one of the reasons we're doing this show early today is because I have a special guest at nine, Dr. Bill Dysinger, who turns 96 today. He's the father of Dr. Wayne Dysinger, who they're one of the, they're both founders of lifestyle medicine. And Dr. Bill Dysinger is really kind of the one that, kind of facilitated the research for the blue zones, which you talked about. And so this is like a perfect segue. One of the things I found most interesting in your presentation was what you were saying about social media and depression. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, I, 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 I'm on it, but it's, but, you know, up until I had a publisher, I never, you know, really was that interested in it. But now in order to have a publisher, you know, they kind of push you to have, mm -hmm. you know, these followers. And, and it's just, I can't, I personally, I, I can't stand it. And I don't even understand why other people like it because, you know, I don't really follow anyone. I mean, I have a couple of people that I've clicked follow, but I, I like never look at it. I hate it. I hate to say that I hate it, but, but it's like, is it ever going to go away? And why aren't they, you know, you saw that movie probably on Netflix, right? Yes. Yes. The uh... Social Dilemma. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and it's it's almost like the people that created it don't let their kids use it, just like the people that created Oscar Mayer Lunchables don't let their kids eat it. Um, I mean, what do we do to get out of this mess now? Yeah, no, this is a very profound question, and I wish I had the answer. And this is, you know, like you mentioned, like a lot of times these habits are ingrained early in life. So when you have young kids being really careful about how much technology they have access to and really enforcing those limits that, you know, just like, you know, we enforce bedtimes, we enforce like you can be on technology for so long. And I get it that they want to hang out with their friends. They want to kind of see the same thing. But, you know, there's clear research showing that the more you use it, the higher the rates of depression, especially in young people. So I think, you know, just educating people, you know, watching the movie Social Dilemma with your kids and saying, you know, these are not sort of benign things. Technology can be helpful, but there is a downside, really almost a dark side to it. 
that we need to be aware and really just, I think it's education and even staying engaged with your kids, especially, and just, you know, spreading, spreading the uh, knowledge about this. Well, you know, I find that even just my phone in general is addictive, even when I'm not using it for, you know, to look at, to, to, to doom scroll. And I, I just don't, I mean, I was, I'm so good at getting over the, out of the pleasure trap with food, but man, the mm-hmm. like, are there help? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely a real addiction these days for so many of us. Um, and then like Dr. M said, I, I really, I'm concerned about the children because they're getting exposed to it so much earlier than we we did, right? I have um, patients who come in with their kids and when it's time for an appointment with me, it's so convenient to use that iPad as a um, babysitter. babysitter. Yeah. Yeah. So can't their, you know, two-year-old, three-year-old, the iPad, and then the kid doesn't look up. The kid it doesn't bother, you know, during the visit, doesn't do anything, but then they're just so engaged in that, that they're, yeah, so being exposed so early is is really a concern. So it's tempting to use it as a babysitter, but like Dr. M said, really try to keep kids away early years of their life. Yeah, and the American Academy of Pediatrics has actually came out with, you know, specific guidelines. So this is something that the mainstream medical establishment realizes the harm in it. So, you know, it's not just the lifestyle medicine community. Everyone realizes, especially for young kids, we really need to be careful and really, you know, keep an eye on how much they are using. You know, I thought it was really interesting that you said that married people tend to fare better. And, I, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I think when a man is single, he he doesn't go to the doctor. But when he's married, his wife will nag him to go, you know. <laughs> That's and actually, I think the research shows that it's men who live way longer. Um, yes. Married men versus unmarried men. Yeah, exactly. It's beneficial for both, but it's more beneficial for the man. (laughs) Figures, right? They get, yeah, figures. But but that's interesting because when I, you know, I, I, yeah, that would make sense to me. So Jesse makes an interesting point in the chat. She said, I wonder what will happen to in the future to people living in the Loma Linda area. Will things change as the older generations are replaced? Because I've heard people on this show say that the blue zones aren't even a blue zones anymore. Do you know what I mean? I mean, like yes. there are still a few of the centenarians, but the ones that they've replaced them, it's if they were to do the research today in the other four blue zones, they would not be considered a blue zone anymore. Yes, sadly, that is 100% true. And one of the last things that, you know, Dan Butner, I don't know if he, mentioned it on an interview or someplace, you know, one of the fast food restaurants mm-hmm. opened in Nicoya Peninsula, Costa Rica. And this was one of the more isolated of the blue zones. So even there, you know, fast food restaurants are creeping in. So all this research that, you know, we have is really about 30 years ago. And now, you know, whether it's technology, whether it's fast food restaurants, whether it's just unhealthy way of modern life that we seem to be engaged in and really seem to be accelerating, you know, destroying our health and destroying the health of the planet. And this is, you know, a much larger discussion that, you know, how do we get people to become healthier and better stewards of the environment and, you know, healthier stewards of their body? And I think, you know, all we can do is spread awareness and like, like you're doing with, you know, with this and so many other projects that you're doing. Yeah. You know, does community have to be in person to be effective? Because, you know, I did not suffer at all during the pandemic. As a matter of fact, I thrive. People don't not maybe know this about me. I really am an introvert. I mean, I'm outgoing, but I, I, I mean, I thrive during the pandemic, but I still kept in touch with everyone. Thanks to Zoom. You know, I played this game with friends every week. It's called Jackbox. And I mean, I, I, I didn't feel like I missed anything, you know? Yeah, no, no, there is absolutely research showing that, you know, I mean, these videos are pretty clear, you know, whatever facial expressions I have or you have, this is where we can create biochemical and behavioral synchrony. If I smile, you're going to tend to smile. Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) So this works perfectly well. So, you know, technology can be used for it's the, the main key is the authenticity of the connection. And it doesn't have to be with your best friend or family. If you really feel a connection with that other person, whether you're in person or on Zoom, it works perfectly well. And, you know, research more and more is coming out. It's clear that it definitely helps. 
And this is where I think the medical community could have done a better job. We just kept talking about social distancing, social distancing. What mm-hmm. we should have talked about is that, you know, we want still community. We still they want- should have called it physical distancing instead yes. of social distancing. Not a good yes. word. Because, yeah. yeah, they should have said physical, like, you know, you physically need to be this far apart. That mm-hmm. was a terrible name for it. That was a yes, terrible name. Yes, yes, yeah. It led exactly. to a lot of social isolation, which is, you know, loneliness and social isolation is what really is, what affects our health so adversely. Yeah, well, that's how this show got created. It wasn't a show at the beginning. It was just a, you know, way to create connection. And, you know, community, though, it doesn't have to be humans, though, right? I mean, it could be pets. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad Dr. B clarified that. Sometimes I kind of, you know, uh, whatever I have, you know, said before, I kind of repeat the same thing, but I should have mentioned pets, but I'm glad Dr. B did. So any sort of community, even nature can be, you know, a healthy community. So really it doesn't have to be your best friend or spouse, even uh, colleagues at work, if you have authentic connection especially, you know, these things in nonprofits, when people are really invested in a particular project, they really have the same goal in mind. They can really get a lot of the benefits from, you know, being healthy, you know, physically, mentally, socially, absolutely. Well, like, you know, I've never been in prison, thankfully, and hope to never go there. But if they say like the worst thing they can do is when they when they go to, they call it the shoe, the segregated housing unit, or put that, like that's the greatest punishment that they can give them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can imagine that the you know environment in a prison is not going to be ideal, right? I mean, there's you know there's violence and all sorts of you know different things going on. But even then, human beings we're so wired for community, mm-hmm. so wired for interpersonal relationships that the worst thing someone can experience, even in a not so ideal you know uh, environment, is to be isolated. Very good point. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. So here's a question in the chat. It's not about community, but you guys are, are lifestyle docs. So I think you'll know the answer. Annette wants to know if a whole food plant-based way, way of eating can prevent or slow the progression of cataracts. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I have a lot of patients um, who, when they eat healthier, they go back to their doctor. And even though their ophthalmologist had expected them to get cataract surgery the following year, um, they're told that that they're still stable and they don't still need it. I'll give you an example of my own father, who's 78 years old. Um, my mother, who it, it, they're both vegetarian, but she kind of eats more junk vegetarian foods and he eats more vegetables and fruits and things. She needed cataract surgery at around 65 and he's 78. And every year he goes to his eye doctor and his eye doctor says, oh yeah, still very mild cataracts and you still don't need the surgery. And this has been going on for at least eight years since he turned 70. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And then I want to also point out that I recently saw a patient who was 35 and already had cataract surgery. In my 25 years of practicing medicine, that to me was just... Um, so strange. And I asked her, did you ask your ophthalmologist why you would have it so early? Um, and she says, no, he said it can happen these days. And he did the cataract surgery. And the only thing I can think of is our diet is so bad that we're seeing signs of aging of all kinds earlier and earlier in terms of like diverticulosis, colon cancer and stuff that we used to see much later, we're seeing sooner and I guess cataracts as well. Right. I mean, it's basically, you know, damage to that lining. And when there is oxidants and your diet is poor, it's going to damage the uh, cataracts, the, the lens much faster. But if you're eating a healthy diet, lots of antioxidants, lots of anti-inflammatory things, especially with fruits and vegetables. I am not aware that you can actually kind of reverse it, but certainly, you know, stabilize it. So, and if you've had, you know, healthy diet and lifestyle, you can never need cataract surgery. So, you know, we really, you know, this is the part I forget, I think it's Dr. McDougall who says that it helps every part of the body. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're trying to reverse diabetes or lower your risk for cancer, it's going to do everything, improve your kidney disease, eye disease, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know how Dr. Greger says, is there nothing a plant-based diet cannot do? 
Yeah. <laughs> you say it very well. <laughs> that is something. Why, you guys, why do you think it is that, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, it just seems to me that most people wait until there's a problem to do mm-hmm. something. You know, mm-hmm. most people are, you know, preventative medicine is, is kind of a joke in a way, because most people wait until they have way too much weight than they're wanting to carry or have some kind of disease that's reversible, but they maybe didn't know it or just didn't want to deal with it. They no, it doesn't seem like very many people other than maybe like Dr. Goldhammer are proactive about this. Yeah. And I think this is a perfect question for this uh, topic, because as human beings, as we were talking about, We want community, even if we are with an unhealthy community, that this is just something innate need in humans that we need to hang around other people. And whatever the general society is doing, if the general society is drinking Cokes instead of water, they're eating steaks instead of, you know, broccoli, they're eating chips instead of, you know, cherries, that's what we're going to end up doing. We're just so influenced by the environment, so influenced by other people around us that consciously or subconsciously, this is what we end up doing. So this is why it's really important to, you know, consciously cultivate a healthy community. And I mean, I think Dr. B mentions this to her patients all the time that you know, we want you to be part of a healthy community. And this is why we go to great lengths to you know, create a healthy community for the patients in our, in our uh, clinic, because we're gonna end up doing what we see on the TV and what we see our friends and neighbors doing, maybe not so much neighbors. Yeah, here's a question for you guys from uh, Jesse. Does, do your beliefs come more from your own families and connection or have they come about over time from things you have learned? So definitely for me, it has been over time from things we have learned. And, you know, certainly, so I guess uh, maybe Dr. B can add on to this, but certainly, you know, our genes play a role on how we behave and how we act. Certainly our family plays a role and, you know, especially the early formative years. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is, you know, just being open to the information that's out there. You know, when we graduated from medical school, We thought, okay, if you have these set of symptoms, this is the medication you need. We never were introduced to the idea that diet and lifestyle can be used as treatment. So this is something we learned and actually, you know, on social media, maybe Dr. B can tell uh, tell about, uh, talk about that. Yeah, I, I think it's both. I think our beliefs come from, you know, our families and our culture and our, um, social influences that have been, especially like he said, the early formative years, it's really hard to undo the stuff that um, is formed during that time. Um, And then later having more of a growth mindset, who was it, Carol Dweck, who wrote a book Mm -hmm. on that? Carol Dweck, yeah. 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 Um, Really helps you to truly find what it is that you want and grow and not have a fixed mindset. Um, because a lot of people feel like, oh, this is my choice. I want to, you know, it's my choice to eat a steak or it's my choice to do this. But a lot of times it's that they've been so influenced by the culture around them that they think it's their choice, but it's kind of been made for them. So having an open mind and um, just be willing to learn, I think is very helpful. I mean, learning about lifestyle medicine has been eye-opening for us. And then this changed, you know, so many things in our life, you know, just the way we go around life, not just with diet and lifestyle, how we interact with our uh, children and other family members. So it's really, you know, kind of having that growth mindset and being open to learning and seeing, you know, doing things a little bit differently and seeing how they work out. And, you know, if you don't like it, you can try something else. Oh, and we did learn about lifestyle medicine from social media. Sorry, I think you said that. Uh, <laughs> so then, it, then it's a, then it's a mixed blessing, right? Yes. Right. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, Barbara says, "I have RA. Some days I feel great, but some I feel awful. Is that normal when healing? I've been whole food plant based for seven months." Yeah. So the human immune system is one of the most complicated and complex systems there is in the known universe. And whole food plant-based diet will definitely help. But this is where I really try to stress to all of my patients, but especially the autoimmune patients, 
that it's all the pillars of lifestyle medicine that are going to affect it. It's, you know, having support and healthy relationships. It's regular physical activity and stress management. That's a big one for uh, autoimmune diseases because our immune system is so easily affected by our emotions, by our, you know, stress levels, cortisol. Just think of it. When your cortisol is high, your inflammatory markers are high. When your inflammatory markers are high, you're going to have more joint pain. I mean, it's really that simple. So, you know, RA is a complex disease and our immune system is very complex. It's affected by diet and lifestyle. Great. Thank you. What what pillar are we going to talk about next month? Because we've done, this is the fifth month. So uh, what is left? So uh, the, what's left is addictions to substances like tobacco, alcohol, and I'm actually, we're going to broaden it out a little bit. We're also going to talk about uh, food addiction and social media addiction. So it's going to be more about addictions than just focusing on substances. And we're going to kind of present that, you know, how can we get out of the pleasure trap to use Dr. Goldhammer and Dr. Lyle's book, you know, how can we get out of these addictions, whether it's food, social media, or anything else? I am looking forward to that one. And this, I need help with this one. I played a few <laughs> words with friends and it started out very in, innocently when I had a concussion and uh, my lifestyle medicine doctor who's vegan said, oh, you know, Scrabble's good, you know, play games. And it just got out of hand, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, part of this just being human. So, you know, we're all trying to do a little bit better. And, you know, this is, this is a journey for all of us. Well, I think lifestyle medicine is amazing. And, and that's why I always encourage people, you know, it, not just to go to a vegan doctor, which of course I recommend if you're vegan, because they really get you and they understand the diet and they can interpret your blood tests. But one that's board certified also in lifestyle medicine, because it's just, it's just been a game changer to have that type mm -hmm. of a doctor on your team, because they, you know, they're not going to just look at you as a number and a lab. They're going to talk about all the pillars that you've talked about the last five months. Yeah, and it's been really been a privilege to know lifestyle medicine has done wonders for our own lives and really we enjoy just, you know, hanging out with our uh, patients, not just on weekdays, but on weekends, you know, we're doing yoga together, we're doing potlucks, it's really rewarding. You do the, the meditation that I always put that in the chat, you do that free meditation. So you got walk with a doc, eat with a doc. Pray with the doc. <laughs> it's endless. Well, guys, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And we look forward to seeing you back next month. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back in about five minutes for the 96th birthday of one of really the founders of lifestyle medicine, Dr. Bill Dysinger. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.